Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome back to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Today we're talking weeds. And we have Dr. Mark Lautz, the Ohio State University Weed Specialist here with us today. Welcome, Mark. Thanks. Good to be here. To start off, could you give us an idea of what you're seeing out there? Oh, gosh, everything, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could almost say that any year about the state where you have every possible condition. And this year, I think maybe it's a little bit um, exaggerated by some weather extremes in certain parts of the state. Um, you know, we have some guys that haven't been able to get in because it's been wet or windy. And, of course, we have some issues with some guys probably planning to spray some dicamba. And so they have some, you know, restrictions on that that you know, are even more strict than maybe on some other other chemicals so that would impact um, them also so uh, you know there's some big weeds out there um you know giant ragweed i think is, is always a big offender there given that you took care of your mare's tail well enough it burned down and your residuals are working and we certainly had enough rain i think in most cases for residuals to work and in some cases probably enough rain they're going to start to break at some point so giant ragweed's your issue and um, especially, you know, if you have you're just using glyphosate still or using contact products, mixing glyphosate with Flexstar or using Liberty, I mean, you have a size there that you need to get in by, and you're better off to do that, you know, and then come back a second time post-emergence if, if you need to. But in some cases where guys are wet and they just get bigger by the time they get in, that, that'll be it. They'll just have to pull the trigger and load up and, you know, use as, as uh, high rates, I think, as they can. If they are using dicamba, it'll probably annihilate what's out there at least for a few years. So, um it's probably not as much of a concern, which is good because, again, you have a lot of weather restrictions on that. Yeah, so you mentioned weather a few times. This year's been somewhat challenging um, for different parts of the state. Now, it seems like the last few years we just have so much wind in the spring, and then when we get wet, that's a challenge too. So how does that come into play? Yeah, I agree with that. It, you know, um, our perception also is that there's more more wind, um, and and especially if you uh, listen to Jim Knoll, our weather guy, he says, you know, we have more sort of extremes. So we have, I think, um, not necessarily more wind all the time, but just higher wind certainly at times, I think, than we've had. Um, and, and it's an issue. And, you know, what we've talked about for years is um, residual, enough residual herbicide to create you the right window so that you have flexibility to get in, you know, when the weather is good. And I think with most of the states using residual herbicides, we hope you know, we don't go backwards on that. So that's really the thing, I think. you know. And then what you're typically coming back for, um, depending on um, your resistance and you know what your history is, is common ragweed, giant ragweed, grass, right? In some cases, some mare's tail, but you don't have to deal with it post if you do the right thing pre. And then uh, water hemp and hopefully not palmer amaranth, but a few people with palmer amaranth. So what you're trying to do is create you know, the right situation so those don't get away from you. Um, you know, Palmer amaranth and water hemp really have to be controlled by the time they're two inches, three inches tall in the case of Palmer amaranth to really, you know, four to six in the case of water hemp. Um, you know, so you're trying to create that right window. And if you do, I think you have flexibility. But then, you know, we have guys covering a lot of acres. And, and then you have issues um, of depending on when you plant it and how fast the crop's progressing, you're bumping up against uh, herbicide restrictions that are R1 and, and R2 and, and things like that. So. Um, yeah, it's an issue. I'm not sure there's an easy solution, um, but certainly using enough residual and then kind of knowing what your different options are post. Like, can I add Flexstar? Can I bump my rate? You know, one of the nice things on the newer beans coming out, even if it's a dicamba bean, apparently will have, 
you know, the Gufas and the Liberty Link trade in it at some point, and the Enlist being. So you have some different options that maybe, you know, depending on what your weather's doing, you could say, okay, well, I can't spray Dicamba in this weather, but I would be able to spray Liberty. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, that's just a situation we're going to have. Guys are so big. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I agree. That I think the weather extremes are, are there where it seems to be climate change or whatever where, um, yeah, we're just having these extremes of wind and rain and everything. So you mentioned, you know, fall herbicide applications being part of giving yourself that window in the spring. Are you seeing a large difference between fields that had a fall applied herbicide compared to ones that didn't? Yeah, the fall applications we've promoted for years and, and more lately it's been for Mare's Tail, right? And that's because if you look at our spring options for Mare's Tail, 2,4-D and Sharpen, there's nothing that's bulletproof. Um, and now we have the dicametry, which is a little more bulletproof, but ideally you take those out in the fall so that you start clean early spring and then anything you have to deal with in your spring burn dye is going to be small newly emerged mare's tail. The overwintered ones just get tough to control and the combination of glyphosate and ALS resistance and mare's tail just made our spring burn down situation more difficult. So lately that we've promoted that and there's a big difference. I mean almost all the calls that I get on mare's tail I ask in, in the course of that conversation did you use a fall application and most of the spring burn down issues are no I did not do a fall application I and mean, I think most dealers and consultants are on top of that. It's a matter of whether they can get their growers to still spend money for a fall application. Historically, we started doing fall applications because we built up populations of dandelion and chickweed and dead nettle, and, and it was just difficult to get fields to dry out so you could plant and even get, I was hearing from people, I can't get my tillage equipment through my chickweed, it's falling up. So that's sort of the, the long history, and then we got into mare's tail. So the prediction would be if you start to take out fall applications, your, mar- your spring mare's tail situation is going to a burned out situation is going to, going to get more difficult again, right? Um, and you have more options than you did. And then the other thing I probably would predict would be possibly a rebound in dandelion populations, depending on what the spring program. And then overall, history would tell us um, it may take a few years, depending on what your populations are like. But you know, you may start to build up your chickweed and dead nettle in some of those winter annual populations again to have that issue. So it may be something where if you're using dicamba as your spring burn down. And it's good enough on mare's tail. You may look at the fields and say, okay, I need a fall application at least uh, every fourth year, every other bean, you know, going into every other bean crop or something like that. So I don't get into those type situations. But certainly the fall application, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who didn't like what their fall application did. That's not really the issue. The issue is I have to cut costs somewhere. Or um, also the issue is harvest gets late, I ran out of time, weather turned bad. And I, I know there's lots more intentions of fall applications in some case and I hear you know repeatedly I, I ran out of weather mm. so but they're always a good thing but and, and really you can do them for um, you know we've done a lot of research on fall applications since 1999 I mean just years and years and every conceivable treatment you can imagine and you can really do it for about five dollars worth of herbicide yeah. um, so it's it's not necessarily something that costs you a lot of it's you know it's, it's always a good thing I think yeah, and if you like you said, if you delay it too long, then you might end up spending a lot more on your spring application if those populations build back up. If you skip your fall burn down, um, and I don't know, we did the corn reader survey this past winter, and crop consultants reported only about five percent of their growers were putting a fall burn down on seventy-five percent or more of their acres. So do you think with the new technology that's coming out, people might be slackening off 
depending more on the newer herbicide technology? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I'd have to see the numbers on how many of our acres actually got treated with dicamba in the spring, which is really your, um, you know, your switch that allows you to um, do pretty well in overwintered mare's tail. There, there's, I think that's, that certainly has to be part of it, I, I would think. Um, again, if that's sort of a snapshot of one year, you could have weather issues. That seems like a low number to me. I mean, overall, yeah. compared to how much I think gets treated, but again, that's mm -hmm. just their customer base. Right, that's very true, and it depends on who completed the survey, of course. I think farmers were around 20%, and again, we asked on 25, 50, or 75% of acres, and I can't recall, like, at 50% of acres, you know, maybe they're focusing more on um, corn or soybeans with that fall burn down, so when you get to 75%, it might drop off. Right, we advocate especially fall applications in front of beans because mm -hmm. that's where we've had the more difficult burn down situation. So if you look at those numbers and say they're doing 25% of their total acres, that could be half of their bean acres, right. which, yeah. um, you know, is, is probably reasonable. So do you want to update us a little bit on the new technology coming out? Sure. I, I think the issue with new technology is just a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of great stuff from a wheat scientist perspective. We have issues with it, certainly, right? We have the dicamba issues, which we're still being resolved. Kind of see how that um, plays out this year and where we have to head eventually with a label. Um, and we certainly have uh, herbicide resistance to current herbicides, glyphosate, ALS, nivers. So I think we need new technology. Um, it doesn't, I think one of the things about new technology is um, you have to be careful about dropping it in and, and oversimplifying your herbicide program again, because we're dealing with four, I mean, if you really boil down to the weeds that we're really struggling with, especially in beans, there's actually five for us, depending on where you are in the state. So there's always mare's tail, right? Um, then there's giant ragweed. Um, and there's common ragweed in areas that it's difficult. It's developed three-way resistance in some areas, so um, it doesn't tend to have as long an emergence period and be as difficult at burn down and things like that. But it's certainly there. It's an issue for people. And then the pigweeds, which long-term, you know, the water hemp and palmer amaranth are our, uh, our two big issues. We hammer on those a lot in terms of prevention because those are the two weeds that long-term have the most potential to reduce profitability and cause the most issues. Um, and so if you look at that, they have complicated life cycles, they tend to develop resistance. So the caution on new technology always is, okay, I can just spray dicamba twice or I can just spray 240 twice or whatever. And, and then you're, you're, in addition to developing resistance, you're not necessarily matching that strategy, um, you know, to the biology of the weed. Uh, but I mean, if you sort of go one by one and kind of go down through some of that, I'll start with the one that I, um, it's actually available, but we don't have a herbicide for it yet. I don't think it's approved. And that's the balance GT, I think it's called, or the GT bean, um, which has the uh, resistance to um, isoxaflutol or balance. And then Syngenta has a similar bean um, they're working on. So, I mean, if you look at how that, that fits in beans, the neat thing about that trade and the ability to use mesotrion and callisto in beans, and mesotrion prices have dropped considerably, so there's a lot more use in corn right now, is that, you know, that's another herbicide that can give us some residual uh, control of giant ragweed and we really struggle there. I mean once you have ALS resistance especially we're out. Um, and so you can use that I think them early post depending on the bean. Um, so that's kind of a, a neat fit. The way that's being positioned I think although of course those companies are changing is a premix of uh, isoxaflutol and metribucin, right? So not, not a bad tool. Our caution on that one really is 
this goes back to our education about herbicide resistance, not overusing certain herbicide sites of action and not using them every year. As we use a lot of HPPD inhibitors, um, site 27, which is mesotrione, isoxaflutopol, um, impact, uh, laudis, um, and Callisto um, in, uh, in corn, right? And we rely on them pretty heavily there. And the price, as I said, the price came down in mesotrione. So the mesotrione is being used increasingly in corn and almost every premix now new one has mesotrione in it. So I think you have to look at that and say, okay, where's my value and where's my, you know, better use of HPPD inhibitors? And if I'm going to go heavy on those in corn, you know, I might not want to use them in beans. And that does depend on how many different herbicides you're mixing with them, right? But that's sort of one caution on that. Uh, we'll be talking about more about that over the next couple of years. That dicamba bean actually obviously has a really nice fit for us for um, mare's tail and our primary weed, which is giant ragweed. I mean, dicamba annihilates ragweeds, um, and it does, it does pretty well on, on uh, horseweed. We have issues with that, obviously, that are still being resolved in terms of how when it should really be used and, you know, uh, the danger of sort of, or the, the problems with mid-season post-emergence application and, and what they can do to surrounding areas. And, and I think there'll be some resolution over time, I assume, with that. But, but that being, um, you know, the ability to use dicamba in the pre-plant burndown, you know, as we talked about with the fall applications in the mare's tail, it's good on mare's tail there. It's good on giant ragweed, and we have glyphosate resistance, with it, resistance issues with both of those. Um, it's not completely bulletproof on on mare's tail, but in our plots, it's, it's really pretty good. I mean, it's most of the time above 90%, regardless of size. Um, and, and obviously, it has a good fit post-emergence for those weeds, and it has a fit for post-emergence water hemp and palmer amaranth control. Our message on the dicamba has been um, try to create a system where you restrict it to the pre-plant burndown application where it has a lot of utility for mare's tail and then, you know, don't necessarily plan on using it post. And if you have to, obviously, you're going to have to pick the right weather conditions and all that to try to use it. My sense on that one, though, is that um, there's a number of people who are seeing how good it is on giant ragweed, and they're definitely going to use it post-emergence for giant ragweed control. Um, and so we'll see kind of what the issues are with off-target movement. But the reason for that is we have glyphosate resistance issues, so we have giant ragweed populations that have lost some response to glyphosate, so you get 70% control, but it's not good enough, and then some that flat out just regrow completely. And so you can go to the Liberty Link system, which is good on giant ragweed, but your alternative then, if you're not doing that, is to add Fomesafin Flexstar to your post-emergence glyphosate, and it's a so-so solution, really. I mean, Flexstar, Fomesafin is about an 80 to 85% giant ragweed herbicide, so that's why I say I think people are struggling with that then they look over here and say, okay, that's dicamba post, and that's really good. Liberty system's good. And then the other system, of course, is the Enlist bean, um, which uh, is struggling to get export approval still for a number of years. And that bean, of course, has resistance to glyphosate, Liberty or glufosinate, um, and then also 2,4-D. So that has a nice fit also. And 2,4-D annihilates ragweeds and essentially has the same fit on, on post-emergence water, hemp and palmer amaranth, and then that bean already has the ability, you already have the ability to use Liberty with that bean, which gives you a couple different options if you get in a situation where you don't want to spray the 2,4-D post and you have some glyphosate resistance, you have the Liberty trait. The other nice thing about that is that on a weed like water hemp, you know, our two main suggestions on a weed like water hemp, which develops multiple resistance as rapidly as any other weed is, um, number one, don't let it go to seed. 
right? Because it produces so many seed, you're trying to just keep it from, from increasing. And the other one is try to always have two sites of action that work on it, which in theory um, will help slow down the development for resistance to either one. Um, uh, not completely. Um, that's why we talk about um, eliminating seed production. So that's the advantage of that. The disadvantage or issue with the enlist bean is it does not solve our pre-plant 2,4-D issue on mare's tail if you haven't done a fall application. Mm -hmm. And we have data on this and we have a couple studies. We had one last year. We have a couple this year looking at alternatives. Like if I use it in my, in my pre and it doesn't work completely, what are my post options? Besides just respraying with 2,4-D, which is, you know, basically resistance 101. Um, you know, and so we're looking at, at some possible solutions or how can I alter my burn down so that I get effective burn down? Like can I mix Gramoxone with the 2,4-D and Metribuzin or what are my my different options are. So, you know, our recommendation in that being ideally is you still do the fall application so you, you don't have those issues or you're going to have to alter your your burn down. Um, and the system works. I mean, the danger with a system like that is, and actually the dicamba system both, is you could take both of those in the short term and say, okay, I'll spray glyphosate dicamba pre and I'll come back with the same thing, no residuals. And I can do the same thing in the enlist bean and make it work, but for how long? Mm -hmm. It also doesn't take into account what you talked about, wind and weather. So if you decide, oh, I'm taking out residuals, which is what we're all scared of, people will, mm -hmm. you know, then, yeah, you've controlled it at burn down, but you've got everything coming up and you don't have that flexibility in your post window. So I'm hoping we're kind of past that point where uh, people will try to take residuals back out of their soybean program. Um, but I'm sure someone will. So, but those, those are all good systems. The 2,4-D, as far as we know, has... Um, I mean, we have to count on, just like we had to count on Monsanto and BSF, we scientists are not, we're not, uh, till now, developing independently um, volatility research with any of those new formulations. I think now some weed scientists are working with BSF and Monsanto on the dicamba, but the Dow, we, or the, or the 2,4-D, we still have to take Dow DuPont's word that, that has reduced volatility. And 2,4-D historically has... Um, fewer volatility issues in dicamba and can be more easily modified by changing the formulation, like amine versus ester. So, I mean, we're sort of, um, you know, we're, we're assuming that we're going to have fewer issues. But it has some of the same restrictions. I mean, I don't know if those will get more um, restrictive because of the issues we've had with dicamba, um, but it has some of those same restrictions on a buffer, right, and wind speed and a, and a label that says you have to use exactly this nozzle, these nozzles at exactly this pressure you know, and things like that. So, yeah, th those are good systems. Our issue, and our two issues have been don't oversimplify your system, or three issues. Um, you know, make sure you're, you're not picking a system that ignores the biology of the weed, and then again, you have to take into account your long-term resistant development potential. So if you're going to decide, okay, I can spray 240 on giant ragweed every year post-emergence of I plant beans, about the fourth or fifth time you do that, you're at risk of having plants come through. Yeah, I think that's a pretty critical point because if we develop resistance there, then where do we go next? There's not a whole lot of options after. Right, we keep that. saying that as weed scientists, and, <laughs> and we've been making that threat for years. We're not going to have any new products, and then we keep bailing everyone out. Yeah. But um, I think you're right. New, new actual new active ingredients. I've just been really slow, and especially active ingredients and new sites of action that work on those five weeds. I mean, we just really struggle. So yeah, you're inserting older herbicides back in. So for example, the isoxaflutol, the balance is, as I said, it's a neat system, but now we're overusing that one, mm -hmm. 
right? So yeah, yeah, at some point now, um, by the time all that stuff gets broken, I'll probably be retired. So it doesn't matter. That, <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth and I will be here to pick up the pieces. <laughs> no, we're not. We're pretty far away from retirement. Right. You, can still, you can still call me and I'll say how I feel for you. <laughs> <laughs> so in those five leads you talked about, one in particular is one that we really weren't talking about five to ten years ago, <coughs> um, which is water hemp. Um, it's really moved into the state and kind of taken over pretty quickly. And then there's another weed that I don't know that you meant, I don't think that you mentioned palmer amaranth that is a growing concern as it appears in some areas of the state. Can you talk a little bit about why those weeds are coming in and, and why they're spreading so quickly? Right, so I mean the water hemp was the original glyphosate resistant weed in places like Illinois and Missouri and Iowa whereas we developed um, giant ragweed and mare's tail, especially mare's tail first. So I, I, I've been surprised we haven't had more water hemp than we have and we have a few pockets in the state like West Central Ohio Dark County and some places like there that probably have it about as long as anyone else has and they and those populations have developed the three-way resistance that you know, they developed in, in Illinois so I, I have been a little surprised water hemp is out of the barn now I think kind of running I, I my working theory on water hemp is we shifted to residual herbicides we probably didn't have as many native just inherently inherently native populations of water hemp maybe as they did um, further west but I think it was there and I think what happened was we shifted to residual herbicides for mare's tail control and probably giant ragweed control and we took good care of it for a while and then I think we started missing it in our post applications right so we still were dealing with it post emergence and it's been creeping up and it produces so much seed so that one you know you can sort of draw a curve where I have X amount of seed production from a weed and like you have sort of a lag period and then it starts to take off and we like giant ragweed, that can be kind of a long lag period, but for water hemp and palmer, they're producing a couple hundred thousand upwards of a million seeds per plant. So that lag period is like a year, right? So once you reach that time, and I've seen it in a number of fields where guys said, I didn't have this weed last year and amino you know, was out of control. So, you know, they had at least some, but you have a very short period. And I think we're in that now with water hemp at multiple places in the state, right? We have a sort of starting to get some small epicenters. I know Ed Lentz is dealing with it up in um, Finley areas and places like that. So I think we're, we're it's it's here now. We have it. Um, I think we can expect to continue to see that increase. Palmer amaranth, um, you know, uh, our educational palmer amaranth is. We were told by the guys in the south, you have to get across to everyone because of the seed production. They have to nip it in the bud before you know, not let it go to seed when they have a few plants. So you know, a big part of our whole education is late season scouting, especially if it's in the neighborhood and knowing how it can get to your fields, right? So the good thing about Palmer Amaranth is we've had a couple fields that had to be mowed down. That's not the good thing in, in August, um, but everyone else, um, it's come in, everyone sort of jumped on it and gotten it under control. And, and then we've advocated a community effort there where, okay, everybody in the area has got to be involved um, and walk fields and take it out. And so we, we have it, I want to say Palmer Amaranth is mostly under control in the state, even where we have had it come in. We continue to get new um, introductions of it, right? Um, and the way it's coming in, of course, is um, cotton feed products from the south, because it's all over the south. That's where it developed first. Um, and then uh, some of the crap and wildlife seed coming from places like Kansas, Texas can have it. And there, that's sort of a whole other issue. And then uh, spread by machinery and also birds and then um, in a local area both water hemp and palmer can spread by uh, flooding right i hear about water hemp a lot that way um, spreading uh, by flooding so you, you know you want to 
know, okay, if I'm getting used machinery, where it's come, where's it coming from? You know, if I got a guy I'm taking manure from, it's you know, what's he feeding? Right? Do I have a potential for that? Um, you know, if somebody's custom harvesting for me. Where's that combine been? And then you know, you can always the um, crop and wildlife seed ODA will still test that um, to see if there's palm amaranth in it. So you want to know how it can get in there. So the good news about Palmer is, you know, it's, it's fairly restricted. I say we're cautiously optimistic about Palmer, I guess, maybe is one way to, to put it. But the state thinks uh, on high alert for Palmer, and as soon as it comes in, everyone sort of jumps on it. So we, we're hoping that continues. There's enough water hemp already. We're, we're past, we're really past that point. So, you know, in water hemp, um, Aaron Hager from Illinois came over to a meeting that we had over at Bakken's and did a really nice job. I've been dealing for water hemp for a long time. The University of Illinois knows more about water hemp probably than anybody else does. Need a couple messages, but one of them was ultimately you have to shut down seed production. It doesn't matter how you rotate your herbicide program or what kind of diversity you have there. That um, it will you will always select for a few plants that have resistance to that because it has that inherent variability. And they have water hemp populations with definitely five-way resistance now and also another mechanism of action which is enhanced degradation which confers resistance to more than one site of action at a time so it's a, it's a scary weed um, long term so in um, not necessarily a burn down weed but comes up um, you know through a lot of the season into July late June July palm ramaranth comes up all year which is one of the reasons it's a big issue. So palm amaranth, if you go in late July or August for a field that is infested and you pull back the beans, you'll see a new flush of palm amaranth down there. You won't typically see that for water hemp. Um, and of course, that's a reason like in the south, they've been advocating gramoxone after corn harvest to take out the plants that are still there. For us, we, we I typically tell people, I think the frost is going to get those before they produce seed. But in a silage corn situation, you can cut them off and they'll come back and produce seed still. So palm amaranth is just, an, I mean, it's an amazing weed. The um, Achilles heel on both those weeds is they have a relatively short soil seed life, the order of several years for most of it. So again, Aaron showed some really nice numbers over there um, at the Bakken's meeting about if you just control it for three to four years, your population's back very, very low. You can do that with giant ragweed too. And that's the, again, the only saving grace with Palmer amaranth also. Um, so your program for both of those is good residuals um, in both corn and beans, really. Um, uh, good residuals, hopefully a couple different residuals, but then your strategy can vary with your post-emergence. And for both those, you know, giant ragweed, we spray a lot of giant ragweed really big, but, you know, if you look at our recommendations for giant ragweed, typically what we say is spray the first time when they're about 6 to 10 and then come back if you need to. Uh, which you're forced to even if you put residual down because when they're six to ten inches tall all the other weeds are just coming out of the ground right um, if you put a good residual down um, you know the recommendation for palmer is up to three inches tall posts and water hemp up to you know maybe a little bit bigger than that so um, knowing that you have more coming um, you have a couple different things you have to think about one is what type of resistance do i already have in the population we're assuming most of it's glyphosate resistant some of it's already ppo like black star resistant um, so you have a size issue, making sure you get up with a small what can I spray that still works. And then typically you're early enough, um, depending on how well your residuals work, you can be early enough with your post still that you need more residual or you're going to have to spray post again. So the adaptation that's been made for both those weeds that we haven't largely had to do is to add like uh, like a dual metallicore product or zidua or something like that to the post application to hopefully give you enough residual control after that that you don't have to spray 
post-emergence again. We haven't done it because it doesn't work on Maris tail and giant ragweed. It's, we don't have weeds, we don't have herbicides you can add at that time to give you residual, right? Just, it largely doesn't work. Um, but it does work for those weeds and then um, you're hoping you don't have to spray again uh, post-emergence. And then the other uh, modification that's been made because one of the things you're trying to do always with water hemp is reduce the number of weeds I'm spraying with my post-emergence, right? To reduce my selection pressure and hopefully make my herbicides last longer. So the two ways you do that is one, you can use decent residual at planting. I mean, if you don't use residual in a water hemp situation at planting, I think it's largely game over. Um, but then the other way that this has been done in some fields is you just come out about three weeks after planting before you see any plants and lay in residual, right? And then come back later with your post-emergence as you need to, which probably does a better job at reducing how much you're going to spray post. But I mean, the disadvantage of that is three applications, time, money, and everything else. So you don't necessarily have to do it uh, that way. But um, we're trying to get, uh, there's a program in place we have this year um, with several of our educators in Western um, and Northwestern Ohio to uh, populations that people spray with a, a PBO inhibitor, Flexstar, Cobra, that escape. We have a program at least for a limited number of those to be tested for free. Um, where you collect leaf tissue later in the season and submit it to the company we're working with and get that tested to see what our issue is with, uh, with wh whether they have PPO resistance. Um, okay. But certainly, that I mean, that, as I said, water hemp and Palmer are our greatest long-term concerns. They really are. Is there any concern with the other pigweeds, red root? Like Not typically. I have to say, though, you know, we do an end-of-season survey. We cover about 52 counties and do transects and um you know after the you can guess the weeds that show up in our fields at the end of the year you know it's mare's tail giant ragweed volunteer corn right and then common ragweed in areas and then we actually started picking up water hemp randomly in that survey which we hadn't until recently right depending on what road we drive in what county um red root is like red root pigweed is like weed number five and we collect seed from red root pigweed and we tested it in the greenhouse and have not really picked up with the exception of ALS, really any resistance. We get a hint maybe of some loss of response to glyphosate, but I think red root pigweed, you know, kind of comes back to some of our discussions of weather is some of these situations where we get really good, a lot of mid-season rain, right, and the crop isn't canopied or whatever, red root pigweed is the weed that's going to exploit that. And if you look at our no-till, especially our no-till plots, because the pigweeds do really well in no-till, here on the research farm at South Charleston, um, pigweed is like, it, it's our no-till plots, it can be after the giant ragweed and grass, we can just get a whole new carpet of pigweed. Or we're looking at it thinking, these plots were not really designed to have a second post-emergence application, but there it is, there's the pigweed. So we see the same thing. I think it's taking advantage just of our environment, um, but not, not really resistant yet. Mark, do you have any resources that you can point people to if they're interested in learning more? Sure. So we have uh, we try to get information out in a, in a variety of ways. Um, number one is always the uh, weed control guide, you know, for Ohio, Indiana, uh, and Illinois, uh, which has service uh, basic herbicide information. And, and then if you go to the back section, the problem of weed section, that's where you're going to find more detailed information on control. Like we have a couple pages on giant weed in there. But what we've done for some of the other weeds is now regional fact sheets or two-state fact sheets like I think I took mare's tail out of the back of that guide, and then we have a two-page now fact sheet on mare's tail, which we've been distributing in those folders that go out to all new 
pearl uh, pesticide applicators coming through training every year. So that's been the other thing we've done is try to lump about eight fact sheets that are the most important ones in that folder and get that out as to, to as many people as we can. Those fact sheets also go on our website, um, which is uh, u.osu.edu slash OSU weeds. Um, and so we've got a number of uh, those fact sheets on there. Then we have some regional fact sheets through the USB Take Action Program on some of those weeds, which sometimes are a little bit more general. So, And then we have a YouTube page. So uh, a lot of times where we uh, do a core article or we have something going on at the farm, we'll just shoot a few minutes of video and put it on the on the YouTube page. So those are probably our primary uh, resources along with the core newsletter. Great. Well, we appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.